Hello and welcome to Charity Chat episode 17. I am your host Samuel Davies and I'm here as always with my friend, colleague and collaborator, the very brilliant BB. Hi Sam. <laughs> I went for very, very brilliant there, deliberately, because BB. Oh, thanks. Um, oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what are we going to be talking about this month, Phoebe? We're talking about compliance and sort of looking specifically at the new fundraising regulator, the ICO and the relationship between the two, um, and why it's such an important topic for charities um, coming up in the lead up to the uh, European General Data Protection Regulation changes that are coming into effect in May next year. So how charities are preparing themselves for this and there's a lot of questions um, around it and I think as always Sam we, we're not going to profess to be um, experts in this in any way shape or form but um, it'd just be good to talk about things that we found out through um, research um, and you know conversations that have happened with our, uh, within our organisations and charity sector more widely. Absolutely, and it's quite a meaty subject, isn't it? There's so much to go through. I don't, I don't know if we we'd be able to do that in uh, four hours of podcasting. So I suppose <laughs> that would be a very it'd be a long and boring podcast. <laughs> so I suppose you know this show for those listening is is really a signposting exercise with a little bit of a brief. A summary on each area that we're going to talk about but um, there's going to be plenty of information as always on our website and Facebook page um, so you can check those out. So what is compliance Phoebe? How would you define compliance? What are we talking about? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to define it as making sure that supporters of charities are treated fairly and ensuring that supporters of charities are being communicated with through the channel and the frequency that they want to be contacted. So compliance is almost complying with what our supporters um, tell us that they want. We want the relationships with supporters where we know from them exactly what they want to hear about and when they want to hear about it and how they want to hear about it. And in the same way that we would talk to our friends and family, you know, we, we communicate with them on their terms as much as our own, right? Absolutely. And I think that's what a lot of charities are doing at the moment, is trying to make sure that they are fully aware and getting the information from their supporters now about how their supporters want to be contacted, um, what they want to hear, like you say. Um, I think this period between now and May 2018 is going to be very much a fact-finding mission for charities so that they make sure that they know their supporters inside out and they know exactly what what their supporters want from them. And and why why is it now a good time to be looking at compliance? You mentioned the, uh, was it the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, apologies, we probably will use the um the acronym from now on because it's quite a <laughs> wordy thing so we've got yeah in may 2018 the european general data protection regulation will come into effect i won't talk about brexit and how things might affect that because the simple answer is we have no idea but basically we will probably be following the gdpr um in the uk as far as charities are concerned and the gdpr requires consent to marketing communications and is defined as some form of affirmative action mm. so Charities won't be able to use pre-ticked boxes, for example. So if you, you know, if you say, you know, are you happy to hear from us? Having a pre-ticked box, that's a big no-no now. People have to actively opt in to communications or have an option where if it's if they want to opt out, they can, and if they choose not to tick that box, the charity can then um, assume that they therefore want to hear from them. Um, there is a potential impact on charities' insurance policies 
Um, they may be liable for larger fines if they're not compliant. So it's really, really important that um, the charities do look at their, the way that they um, ask their supporters how they want to hear from them to make sure that they're complying with um, the, the rulings or the, um, the guidelines that GDPR, GDPR are putting in place. There are a whole load of implications there, aren't there, for how charities uh, take that information, receive that information, process that information. Um, I know that, you know, uh, charities I've worked with, um, most charities have got a database. And uh, and so when people are ticking, yes, contact me by telephone, no, don't contact me by email, yes, contact me by post or whatever, that, that information is coming through to the charity and then that's being used uh, properly so that they're not then sending emails to people that have asked them not to. Because as you say, there could be fines following that. So uh, very important stuff, yeah. We've also got this uh, fundraising preference service, haven't we? What's what's that all about, Phoebe? Uh, well, this is this is harks back to what we were just saying. Um, so this is where supporters are given, or charity supporters, it's basically their rights of how they wish to be contacted. And so it will reduce the amount of um, speculative um, posts that they will get from charities. I know that I've certainly noticed in my own you know my personal personal life there's been a lot fewer cold mailings coming through my door from charities I used to get quite a lot but in the last sort of six months it's absolutely dropped off a cliff so I think charities are already being very cautious about how they cold mail and contact people there's been an upward trend according to some research that there is a an upward trend in public confidence in charities um throughout 2016 but public perception does hang in the balance if if charities aren't meeting the public's expectations and their needs, then they just they won't re- receive support. I do wonder if you know this confidence in charities has actually come off the back of the fact that we are now being a lot more cautious about the way that we fundraise. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. What do you think, Sam? I think what was interesting also with that report, I think we've referred to it in previous podcasts as well. I think it's NFP Synergy have, have come up with uh, with these stats and others as well. And um, the the trust that people have in other people is far higher than trust in charities or you know uh, supermarkets or elsewhere. So I suppose that then makes this kind of slightly as an aside from compliance, but that then leads me to think certainly that if you can get your supporters to go out and and talk in a kind of advocacy way about how good your charity is, then that's going to be the best possible way of delivering that message isn't it because if people are trusting one another more than they're trusting you know these companies or charities that are talking to them then um, then that's great as fundraisers i'm sure we you and i have both had the kind of the squeeze from above saying okay when you 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 know getting ready for the next financial year and you're budgeting Mm. you're often being asked to increase your budget your you know your income targets year on year Mm. often there's very little evidence as to as to why why are we increasing our income targets is it just for the pure, pure fact that we're showing progression um and sometimes with fundraisers i don't think the the impact that their increased income targets will have on the charitable cause is not is often not communicated but this is going completely off topic now <laughs> well, no, i suppose i suppose where it links back is is that yeah as, as we say the fundraising preference service um is coming in later this year um, I, I think the most recent uh, report I saw was that it might be coming in as soon as next month. And uh, that's going to allow people to opt out of all communication from charities that they choose to opt out from. And uh, there was talk, and I think this has changed, but there was talk about having the ability to opt out of 
all charity communication rather than specifying which charities they want to opt out on, just ticking a box that says, I'm opting out of any charity communication. And I suppose, again, the implication for charities is that there'll, there'll be a system there where uh, charities will get notified of people that they can no longer contact. So there's, there's that thing too. So I suppose, again, it's just an, another point to say that charities, you know, you need to be thinking, what is in the best interest of my supporter? And do I have a, a, a rapport? Have I built a rapport enough with those people to understand what they're looking for and what they need so that I don't upset or offend them and then they decide not to receive anything from us at all, ever? Spoke very briefly about sort of, you know, financial years and um, budgets and things like that. But how can we stay compliant with our end of year reports, Sam? I'm glad you asked me that, Phoebe, because I have been uh, working on this area for a couple of charities. There are a number of things that uh, that charities should really be doing, and uh, these are things that haven't really changed, but I think they've become more uh, relevant. So one of the things that charities could choose to do is um, clear, transparent reviews of board performance in their end-of-year report. So that's essentially how the trustees are doing. They could also look at how how board performance is being carried out, not just of the board, but of directors in the charity. Also, they could think about potentially uh, publishing uh, executive pay, which I know in the past, certainly the media has picked up on over the last few years, has been a, a bit of a, an issue of yeah. exec pay. And currently, in a charity's end-of-year report, they have to say who... Well, they have to say the top uh, wage was paid... They don't have to say who to, but they have to make it clear what that amount was. But, you know, you could argue that by publishing kind of executive pay, then individuals, supporters are in a position to make judgments based on that. It's not to say that, you know, as we've said before, I think that, you know, you people in charity shouldn't get paid reasonably well. But it's I think it's just part of that transparency. And I think the end of year report is a good opportunity to... Um, to kind of show transparency in terms of how the charity is being run and how much people are being paid and how well they're carrying out their their tasks. So um, it might go some way into um, to improving public confidence in you know the professionalism of charities and how you know remuneration um, kind of fits with performance which you know we accept in other areas of uh, of society don't we we do um i think it is it is quite a controversial topic because i think the, the often the media if they get hold of say you know a chief executive or someone in a charity is getting paid what they deem to be you know an extortionate amount um it could it could reflect quite badly on the charity but of course as you know i know some there are you do in order to get good people through the door and the top talent you do need to pay a reasonable wage now often people will come to the charity sector and not ex- you know they don't expect to be paid a fair whack but in order to attract you know people they do need to ensure that they you know they're raising they're earning um a decent income um i don't think there's anyone who's you know who's salary is extortionate because it's it's all relative depending on the amount of responsibility that they have um so yeah, it's an interesting one. I think there will be a lot of charities that kind of wince when they see, you know, that there's that publishing executive pay is advised. I don't think it would be ever be compulsory, but it may turn into a situation where 
charities that don't publish their executive pay may be looked at um, with some scepticism um, and people may start to wonder why they're not publishing their their, their sort of salary bands or their their top salary so yeah it's it's there's a bit of a double-edged sword there I think for charities absolutely it's, it's, it's tricky and I, I think you know but I mean as, as we say that they are currently having to show how much the, the highest person in the charity is being paid anyway although that mm. can often be hidden in um, pages and pages of um, you know end of year reports so it's whether charities think it might be in their interest to um, to improve that it's not to say that it's always always will be um, and also you know how many supporters care you know if, if people ultimately if the charity is showing the impact of the donations they're receiving then really that's that should be what it's about, shouldn't it? So, you know, we've we've talked, one of the things that has to go in the end of year reports is that, you know, for those charities raising over a million pounds in voluntary income, which I think in the past we've we've identified, I think 90% of charities registered in the UK or England and Wales certainly are raising only about 500,000 pounds a year. Um, so there's a very small minority of charities that are raising over a million pounds in voluntary income. Um, but for those charities that are, they need to have in their annual reports a, uh, a bit of information there about um, their approach to fundraising. For example, whether they use commercial fundraisers and how the charity is protecting vulnerable people in their fundraising practice. So that's something that charities that raise over a million pounds need to have in their annual reports. And uh, yeah, and there are a few other things. Again, we'll, we'll put links on our website for people to uh, to then follow those. Um, you talked about the telephone preference service, Phoebe, earlier, mm-hmm. and there's there's a fair bit about that for those charities that are calling uh, supporters. You know, one of the things that I've been involved in is uh, working with agencies who call on behalf of charities their supporters. So telemarketing is the word that most people understand. So the Telephone Preference Service, TPS, if you put yourself down on that, then charities shouldn't be contacting you by telephone unless you've told them specifically that they can. And yeah, any any phone numbers that are matched on TPS when the charity is looking at who it can call, they should be removed from that calling pool. If you don't remove those, then as a charity, you need to be very sure that that person has given you and that you can show it to any auditor that asks um, permission to call them otherwise you could well be in trouble and probably upsetting those people that you're calling if they're on telephone preference service just a quick question about that sam as you've said that you've been working a lot about this say if somebody signed up to the um so if somebody said to a charity yes i'm happy for you to call me mm. and then after that point they then turn they de- they then signed up for the telephone preference service how would that work with the sort of with the consent that's been previously given stand up or with the fact that they have since signed up for the telephone preference service kind of override that to show that you know because the to show that the individual doesn't want to have um, unsolicited calls which one would sort of stand up against the regulator do you know it's a very tricky situation i think that once you've got permission from the person if they've put themselves on telephone preference service i don't think you need to assume that that means you that could mean mm-hmm. everyone else that shouldn't be calling them they don't want to call them um, and I think you would be able to make that call. I think if you then made that call, because you might, as a charity, you might not know that they've just put themselves on telephone preference service. You won't be notified of that. So you would, you'd call that person up. You might, they might tell you on that call, I've put myself on the telephone preference service. And 
if they obviously if they say so please don't call me again then you take them off of your yeah. you know future calls but then if uh, if they just mention that in passing then uh, i think it's a good opportunity for whoever's calling them to ask are you still happy to receive these calls but yeah i think at the moment you can call people if if they're not on the telephone preference service and there has been an opt-in in the past and there is this question around soft opt-in so if somebody has you know signed up for to take take part in an event for example and uh, and as part of that you're talking to them about events then um, then there is a little bit of a gray area as to whether the charity can call them which we're hoping that the fundraising regulator and the ICO will be being clearer about but yeah mm-hmm. if they're on telephone preference service basically you need a clear opt-in for telemarketing or telephone contact if they're not on the telephone preference service then there's a slight gray area providing they're an existing supporter Okay, thanks. I think a lot of these things are about, you know, what's reasonable, you know, kind of if, if we're talking, you know, I I always think about my, um, my late grandmother, you know, what kind of contact would I expect her to receive from a charity? And and what would be reasonable, you know, if if she hadn't told people or told a charity she'd been supporting, that she had dementia, then, you know, would I have a right to get angry if that a charity sent her a letter or gave her a phone call or emailed her you know and I think that's that's where I always come from trustee knowledge VB we've uh, obviously trustees are the they're volunteers we talked about this back in I think podcast two and they're volunteers they run the charity essentially as a board what what do they need to know because surely they need to know a lot of this stuff Absolutely, yeah. No, it's imperative that the trustees are made aware of um, the charity mission's guidance um, on charities and fundraising, and they should they should know about any agencies that their charity is using as well. So, say you know if you're using a, a telemarketing agency, or um, perhaps if you are you know conducting wealth screening, for example, on your database, which we'll we'll come to in in a, in a little bit, any agencies um, external that maybe you know that may risk a breach of data protection for example the trustees should be made aware of it um immediately so yeah i think it's, it's absolutely imperative that the trustees are kept up to date kept up to speed and also you know as they are the trustee of the charity keep themselves up to date um i think you know when you take on the role of a trustee it shouldn't be always for the charity to feed you information you should go out and seek it and be aware of what's happening in the sector so um so yes i think trustees being making themselves aware but also being made aware by the charity of all of these changes to regulations is really crucial trustees need to be informed by their fundraisers don't they because fundraisers in a charity they'll they'll be the ones that are picking up on this uh, compliance information there is a lot of it as you'll you know gather now from the the length of time that we've been talking about so many different areas but yeah trustees really need to be informed by their by their fundraisers you know and and one of the other things of course is complaints there's a lot more coming out about complaints charities need to have a clear open and accessible complaints policy trustees would need to know about that they'd probably need to sanction it but i know that from from my experience charities that i've volunteered worked with sometimes it's not that clear about the process if somebody calls up to make a complaint how that process is documented and um and dealt with so that's very very important and again that's coming out of the charity commission so charities should be looking now at their complaints policies and how clear and accessible they are 
People have probably heard a lot about uh, wealth tagging recently because there's been uh, in the papers, there are a couple of large charities fined, well, the RSPCA was fined £25,000. I think in the end they settled at twenty-two or something like that, maybe £20,000. Uh, but that's a lot of money. And British Heart Foundation, £18,000. And again, I think they settled at about 14000 in the end. Uh, they were fined by the ICO, who could have actually fined each of them 10 times that amount, but chose to fine them less. Also, just to say, as well as part of that, that I do know that those two charities, I think the those fines were paid for by, well, I think one had a, a major donor that paid the fine and another used trading income because they were both very keen that supporter donations weren't used to pay those fines. But yeah, it, these two charities were fined because of discrepancies identified by the ICO in the way they process people's information and wealth tagging. And also just to caveat that as well, because uh, I don't want listeners to think that those two charities are behaving badly. Both charities have contested the ICO. And I think the takeaway is the ICO, there has been a lack of guidance for charities, which is why we're talking about wealth tagging now, because it's so important. But yeah, essentially, they're an example of how charities can be fined. And there's one clear type of fundraising which is uh, very uh, heavily driven by processing of people's information and that is wealth tagging. What is wealth tagging VP? Uh, well wealth tagging or wealth screening as uh, some people call it is um, basically a lot of charities carry this out on their so they may sort of hand their database over to a company who then um, in, in, and it could be that you pre-select the data so the people that you know may potentially have you know um, well may, may be potential major donors for example or high value donors these companies will sort of screen them they might do profiles you can pay various different amounts as to how much information you receive from the screening so you could sort of pay to say yes we, you know these these people have a wealth that's over x amount and then you can go down and profile them more more closely so this has been been carried out by, by you know quite a lot of charities and especially the major charities for for years and the what the ICO and the fundraising regulator now are saying is that whilst well there's nothing wrong per se with the well screening I think this is a where a lot of where the, the issue with the RSPCA and the British Heart Foundation where their um, arguments against their fines came in was that you know they were never told that they couldn't do it but it basically it does breach data protection because Basically, people weren't being told that their the data that the charity held for them was going to be used in this way. So that's why that's why they were fined. And as you say, they were you know they were a lot smaller than they could have been because obviously the the ICO didn't want to take money away from their charitable causes, but they did need to make an example of them. I think. I suppose on on the one hand, personally, I would see yeah. Do I want a charity or I mean companies do it all the time, don't they? But do I want a charity mm. to be looking at my data, even though it's publicly available, of things like the house I live in or how, how likely am I to be able to give large donations to charities. On the one hand, that would kind of bug me. But then when I think about it and having you know, looked at this with other charities in the past, I suppose you know, the way, even though it's called wealth tagging, what it essentially is, is making sure what it should be is that charities are then talking to their supporters about things that are most relevant to them. So if you're in the same way that, you know, you wouldn't be invited to an event if you lived a thousand miles away, you know, is it worth sending a letter saying, you know, would you be able to give a five-figure donation to help us with this specific thing if you know that that person wouldn't be able to afford it based on their public information? So I suppose it's charities should be 
building relationships with their supporters so that they understand you know, the kind of information they want to receive and frequency, as we've already said. I think part of that is, well, what's a relevant proposition for these people? You know, what would they be interested in supporting and at what level might they be interested in supporting things? But I think the ultimate, the crux of it comes down to when people are signing up and giving you their information, their contact information, are they aware that the charity that they're contacting um, is how they're going to use their information. And I think that when then we talk about privacy policies and, and processing policies, and I think a lot of charities don't have those, and I think they need to to make sure that you know they don't get fined. Because I think the RSPCA and British Heart Foundation arguably would have uh, you know would have benefited from having a clear clearer uh, policy uh, so that their supporters understood. Okay, if I give you a donation and allow you to contact me in the future. Part of that agreement is that you would you will look at me and determine what kind of information you send me. New charity donors do have the right to request all information held on them by a charity and a subject access request. But do donors know that they have that right? I think that's a, this is where a lot of um, the crux of it comes down to is people often not knowing what their rights are and and understanding how how charities use their their information. I think it is a valid point that you do need to know your donors better. And I think the the, the fundraising regulator has said, you know, doing a bit of research on information that's publicly available isn't necessarily a bad thing. And charities are able to do it. But if your supporters come to you and say, what information do you hold? They need to make sure that they disclose everything, not just the say the conversations that they've had with the donor directly any research that they've done to try and for the charity to try and get a better idea as you say to make sure that they're communicating with them in the right way is crucial if people are interested in the information that the charity is holding on them contact that charity state that you're asking for a subject access request and then they you know find out what the information is and that'll hopefully um give you peace of mind uh, that that charity is behaving in the right way. One of the other things, apart from privacy policies and processing policies, charities should now be looking at, if they haven't already got one, is an ethical policy. Um, and I think really that, that contain all of the, the values that the charity has, how they treat people, um, how they deal with processing, how they deal with privacy, and, and all these other aspects of compliance, which will help to ensure that supporters feel that the charity is behaving in the right way. And I think if the, if the charity does that in a very transparent and open way, communicating it through different through the website and through maybe emails and things like that with supporters, I think that's only going to help to um, raise public trust in charities. In, in 2015, Sam, only 35% of charities had, you know, had an, an ethical investment policy that they could disclose it um you know, when asked. So that's quite a small percentage. And it's something that's, as you say, is really important. So fundraising methods are being very closely scrutinised these days, you know, sort of the emotive language use and use of distressing images um, and a product that generates a financial guilt. So say if you get, you know, a cold mailing through the door, I used to get every, it felt like every other month I was getting a cold mailing from this one particular um, very well-known charity and inside it it had, um, it would often have things like a, a, a coaster or a bookmark or a card or a pen or something like yeah. that. It almost made you feel like, uh, you know, oh we've sent you a gift, please send us one in return. It's that and financial guilt, isn't it? It's that kind of, you know, yeah. if you don't give a donation we've wasted money on you and I, that's a really <laughs> cynical way of looking at it but I think that, that can feed into people's decisions which is not great.
no definitely um, so yeah i think an, uh, yeah an ethical policy is um is an important thing to have and it's something that not it's i don't believe that it's it's not legally and it's not a legal requirement at the moment no um, no i think shoring up public confidence is a is a something that charities need to be doing more of and i think that that would be a, a good opportunity and also it's a good opportunity to showcase um, just how thoughtful the charity is. So, you know, uh, whether it's taking part in ethical materials. So when you're getting T-shirts printed, are they made ethically or are they made by sweatshops in China? Um, are you are you banking ethically? Is your investment policy ethical? If you've got investments and, and pensions for staff, it's obviously a requirement. How ethically are they, are they being invested? There's a whole load of stuff that you can involve and include in that. And some Absolutely. charities would be keener than others on certain aspects of that. But that's, uh, yeah, that's down to the charity. So speaking of, of ethics um, and ethical policies, how, how should charities be dealing with vulnerable people, do you think, Sam? Well, yeah, this is key, isn't it? I mean, the, um, the you know, there's a whole load of information. The IOF, uh, the Inf- Institute of Fundraising, um, they had some uh, treating donors fairly guidance fairly recently. Essentially, what it comes down to with vulnerable people is if charities charities need to be able to identify as best they can whether people are making donations under their own free will or whether they you know are they in a position to understand what they're doing are there kind of things in place to ensure that for example anybody that makes a donation that subsequently the charity is contacted by a sibling or a relative of theirs the money then has to obviously been be returned it's making sure that as you said before you know that uh, charity fundraising practices aren't targeting vulnerable people but also that they're mindful that people when you're having a telemarketing campaign you may well get through to people that are considered vulnerable and aren't in a position to make the decision to support you and that you know those people need to be treated differently the charity needs to be mindful of that and needs to have procedures in place to make sure that people aren't unduly pressured and and pushed into things they don't really want to do Mm, absolutely and it boils down to back to having safeguarding policies in place which we've talked about previously on 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 another podcast haven't we so yeah i think that's having making sure that you can demonstrate how you would treat vulnerable people is really is really important and making sure that you follow that through as an organization through everything not just you know not just necessarily in the 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 marketing that you do to to supporters but also in the in volunteers that you have that work with the trust and, and also your staff as well so and there needs to be a great level of training there because again a lot of uh, fundraisers especially but yeah as absolutely for all, all staff really. but you know you will go to events and we'll we'll meet people and there might be occasions where there'll be children around and again you need to have for the fundraisers kind of mental health and mental well-being as well they need to be supported and i think having a and how to deal with vulnerable people policy can really help them to kind of how do you deal with children, how do you deal with people with uh, disabilities, how do you deal with essentially elderly people with, with dementia, for example, and things like that. So, yeah, really, really important. And also, you know, the, the companies that the charity works with, there's more information now about, you know, and more, to, more need for uh, clear written agreements with third parties and making sure that those third parties, when relevant, they also have dealing with vulnerable vulnerable people policy if you've got a telemarketing company calling on your behalf they need to be mindful that they might be speaking to vulnerable people how do they flag that and then what do they do if they do flag that so it's very very important 
take part in telemarketing as a charity or if you are interested in telemarketing as a, as a supporter there's a fantastic article by the FRSB who are sadly no longer with us on GoGen which were a telemarketing company that's uh, that closed down the, and the article is fantastic it'll be on the website and it basically shows the things that charities did wrong when they were working with GoGen and uh, and how those charities are addressing that so again if you if you're doing telemarketing there's so many learnings from there and if you're not, if you're a supporter, then there's so many learnings for you. You could also talk to the charities that any charities that call you up, you could contact them and, and say, you know, are you doing this um, and, uh, and test them on it. So uh, that's on our website, uh, charitychat.org.uk. And also that'll be on our Facebook page as well, Charity Chat Podcast. We've got a great checklist from the fundraising regulator. And also there's a whole load of information about consent and data guidance, which has just come out from the fundraising regulator as well. Um, all of the links we've used as part of our research are on there too. So this month's show, uh, there's quite a raft of things to look through. But uh, if you're a charity, you have to do it. It's, it's as simple as that. So uh, so check out the website. It's a good, uh, good directory of, of sources. And we'll keep updating the website and certainly our Facebook page, uh, which we update regularly with any new changes that are coming through. Um, and just to say, Sam, there is an, an article in a fundraising magazine that's published by Civil Society, uh, the February edition. It's, it's basically spotlight on the regulator, so it sort of runs through what the what the regulator has done so far, what key stakeholders think of it, and, and what, what the future looks like. So that's a really um, useful article. There was uh, also the Institute of Fundraising hosted a joint regulatory event in Manchester um, in February, and there's a really good, again, we'll put the link up on the website, but a really good um a breakdown of 10 things that Daniel Flusky, um, who from the IOF learned from the from the event um, and that answers some of the big questions there. So I think it's fair to say that a lot of the some of the questions, the answer is there isn't a definite yes or a definite no or a definite answer. There's a lot of it depends, which can be slightly frustrating, but work is still ongoing between the fundraising regulator and the ICO to make sure that there is clarity around um, the Data Protection Act and the changes to it that will come into force in May next year. So, BB, what are we going to be talking about next month? Uh, next month is going to be, we're going to get all technical, Sam, and we're going to talk about mobile technology for the charity sector. So looking at um, ways that um, charities can ensure that their their websites, for example, are up to optimised for mobile um, use as more people are using mobile phones to browse the internet. Also looking maybe at some apps as well that charities are using um, to help you know, further their charitable purposes, not necessarily fundraising focus, but their actual charitable work and other other bits of technology around mobile tech fantastic <laughs> that's fantastic. very eloquently put <laughs> well, uh, well yeah thank you everyone for listening this month i hope you've enjoyed the podcast please do get in touch with us as always you can find all of our contact information and also the links from this month's show on charitychat.org.uk and uh, yeah just to thank our sponsors red dog music for sponsoring our podcast kit forest of fools who have been playing throughout the show and will be playing us out shortly and RR Yard Photography for the lovely photographs they gave us pro bono on uh, charitychat.org.uk. Phoebe, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. As always, man. Fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I'll speak to you next month. Speak to you next month. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. <laughs>